Thank you all for tuning in to the Your Edge podcast. I'm Therese Van Ryn, Global Director of Public Relations at Zebra Technologies, and I'm here today with Zebra Board member Dick Kaiser. We'll be talking about how technology is quickly improving workflows that have traditionally been very manual in nature, such as maintenance and repair of fleet vehicles, aircraft, heavy machinery, and industrial equipment. Dick served in the U.S. Navy before joining W.W. Granger Incorporated, where he spent most of his career. He has some keen insights to share with us about how organizations can adapt workflows to leverage di digital tool sets without disrupting operations. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dick. Uh, my pleasure. Wonderful. So first off, I want to thank you for your service to our country. Can you tell us a little bit about your military career? Uh, well, uh, yes, I was in the Navy. Uh, people supposedly joined the Navy to see the world. Uh, however, I spent uh, the better part of two years of my time in the Navy underwater. Uh, <laughs> I was the navigator on a nuclear submarine uh, back in the Cold War era, uh, dealing with uh, the Soviet submarine fleet. And uh, as I reflect back, uh, I, I think about the roots of a lot of the technology that we see today, uh, and particularly how it fits into uh, the framework that uh, Zebra uses, uh, sense, analyze, and act. Uh, mm -hmm. Aside from a, a nuclear power plant back in the 60s, uh, driving the ship, uh, as the navigator, uh, our mission was to maintain a precise location 24 seven while underwater. Uh, so in, the, in order to sense uh, the data we needed to know where we were, uh, a, a myriad of data was collected mostly with analog devices, uh, supplying information uh, from uh, inertial navigation systems, uh, VLF reception, uh, for Lorenzian communication while underwater. Uh, we uh, used the, uh, what was called the transit satellite system. It was before GPS, a precursor of GPS, but it, it used a different technology. It, it uh, measured the Doppler effect from passing satellites and a lot of sophisticated optics. And uh, with, uh, the, the navigation system was populated with a variety of special purpose computers, uh, converting that uh, analog data to digital, uh, analyzing it, uh, the programming for these computers. And, and picture this, this is 20 years before the first, first PC uh, mm -hmm. to uh, get actionable, actionable information out of these systems. Uh, the, uh, the programming was all done at the machine level. Uh, believe it or not, there was no higher order language at the time. So uh, I see we, uh, we sensed the uh, information we needed to know the ship's uh, location and attitude at all times, real time. Uh, we analyzed it uh, and came out with actionable information to uh, uh, make corrections to the system as necessary. That's amazing how even in the early stages of technology used by the military, it had such powerful applications that we may take for granted today. And to your point, it really marries well with the Sense Analyze Act strategy that Zebra deploys today. Well, you know, a lot of today's technology had its roots uh, in the military. Uh, 
military and the space program, I would say. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So Dick, throughout the roles you've had during your career, including the oil services industry, have you also seen an evolution of technology use beyond the military? Well, uh, you know, reflecting, I spent a, a brief period of time in the oil service industry dealing with the exploration and production end of, of oil. Uh, and it was at a time when uh, uh, we were really developing the offshore drilling. And it was very important to understand the conditions down hole. Uh, the only way to get that information back uh, at the time was what they called mud pulse telemetry, which uh, sent pulses of, of the drilling fluid back up uh, to send data up. Uh, the uh, uh, problems with that were that the data transmission rates were incredibly slow. Uh, so uh, that sort of fits back into the Sense Analyze Act, uh, sensing the conditions uh, down there, which were very extreme uh, temperature and pressures. Uh, the uh, solution uh, that uh, the company I was involved with worked on was a measurement while drilling technology to send actually send a, a rugged and believe me rugged computer down at the end of the drill string at the bottom of the well uh, to actually do the calculations down there. And instead of sending data back up, we were able to send uh, answers back up. Uh, and uh, so again, it was sensing the information, uh, the data, analyzing it uh, actually uh, locally at the bottom of the well and sending the answers back uh, to provide uh, the information necessary to take action if there were a problem. We had, because the problem with the oil well while being drilled can be quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What compelled you to get into the maintenance and repair operations or MRO business with Granger? Well, I was recruited to Granger by an executive recruiter and, and uh, I was fascinated with the company uh, and the people that I met particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I would encourage anyone uh, looking at a, another opportunity to be very careful about selecting the people you're going to work with and for. Uh, but uh, Unlike uh, zebras, Granger's uh, uh, business is all about service. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the things that Granger sells are available anywhere. They're basic commodities. And wrapping service around that is having it in the right time and place, uh, having the right product, having uh, uh, high level customer service. Uh, we, we actually insanely fo focused on service. So people would ask me, well, why was the company so successful? And I would tend, tend to respond, well, we answered the phone. Hmm. Uh, so a, a company like Granger needed to be an intelligent user of technology, not really a developer, uh, hmm. say a, a quick follower and use of technology and, and creatively uh, developing a business uh, structure that that could sustain a competitive advantage. Uh, implementing technology, and this would apply, I think, to Zebra's customers uh, at all. Timing is everything. It's important. Uh, many of these companies are operating on thin margins, uh, and they need to uh, minimize the pain 
in uh, implementing uh, technologies that, that they use in, in their uh, strategy. Uh, at Granger's case, uh, Granger uh, for years and years and years had published a large catalog uh, with the products instead of using mm -hmm. uh, information direct from their vendors. And uh, that provided them with a, a, a essentially a great database to uh, uh, first develop uh, an electronic catalog on a CD uh, and then uh, uh, migrating that as the internet came back. And so uh, Granger was live on the internet in the, in the mid 1990s. Uh, and uh, that uh, the, the systems uh, were implemented included uh, a very large and very early voice over IP network. And that was not to save telephone costs. That was uh, to provide, to enable the, uh, the whole branch network of 600 branches to uh, operate as one. Uh, when telephone calls came in so that it was seamless from the viewpoint of the customer. It also, the information system that, that we implemented was able to uh, allow us to uh, do uh, uh, order online and pick up at the branch store, uh, again, very, very early in the, in the, in the process. And it was a significant competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Ahead of their time, for sure. There is a clear use case for mobility solutions and maintenance and repair workflows. Do you see an opportunity for more advanced technologies such as RFID or automation as well? Well, um, you know, way, way back in the early days of RFID, we became aware of it and uh, we envisioned all kinds of things that uh, still are not quite there yet. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, RFID, you know, certainly is a great help in, in a warehouse, but, but we envision things like uh, instrumenting the machinery <laughs> that the customers had in a way that it would provide us information about when, uh, enable us to do predictive maintenance uh, on the machinery uh, and, and the equipment. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, but an RFID chip can be developed to uh, do a lot more than say, just here I am. Um, another technology that I think that's still out there uh, for things like both the military and companies like Granger is 3D printing uh, with thousands and thousands of different products. Some of them are quite low volume, uh, may even not be manufactured anymore. So the ability to uh, print the product on demand uh, I think is great appeal. Uh, I think we're not there yet, but uh, I think, you know, that might be something out there in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for manufacturers, transporters, field service companies, and others who always need to keep equipment and vehicles running to avoid operational disruptions? Are there services, best practices, for example, that they should consider or certain technologies they could leverage to maintain better visibility into vehicle and equipment performance so uh, that they can proactively identify and mitigate issues? Yeah, I think they should call Zebra. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. Simple as that. A good answer. <laughs> How about uh, companies trying to strengthen their channels? What's the key to building trust and rapport when 
recruiting partners and what should companies do to ensure their partners are successful? Well, the, the most important thing in channel management, in my view, is understanding, really truly understanding the value chain. Uh, where is the money made? Where is the opportunity for money to be made in the channel? And are the, the people in the channel uh, and is the channel structured so that everyone is appropriately compensated? Uh, and then uh, once that structure is in place, uh, maintaining consistency and discipline in, in managing it uh, so it doesn't run away from you. Mm -hmm. And Dick, I understand you are the chairman of the National Merit Scholarship Corporation. And one of the goals of this organization is to promote a wider, deeper respect for learning and for exceptionally talented individuals. What role can all of us play to ensure respect is given in these areas? Uh, you know, the National Merit is a really interesting organization. It, it was founded uh, in the late 1950s uh, from a grant, uh, with a grant from the Ford Foundation, uh, mm -hmm. uh, specifically to recognize excellence uh, in the young people uh, graduating from high school. Um, it's a very interesting board of directors. The board is comprised of uh, business executives, uh, is in uh, high school principals and college presidents uh, in a roughly uh, equal mix. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the work they do takes uh, 1.6 million tests uh, taken by uh, the juniors in high school in this country. Uh, and a lot of people have a misunderstanding that test does not determine uh, who is a merit scholar. It is purely a screening device to uh, create an invitation to apply. Uh, they, they uh, with the help of, of uh, a, a group of educators who volunteer and come in every year, uh, we know that 1.6 million down to about 16,000 finalists and ultimately about 8,000 merit scholars. Uh, it is, there, there aren't many, uh, things out there anymore to recognize excellence. Most, most colleges, or a lot of colleges and corporations and others who uh, philanthropists uh, are uh, giving a lot of money to uh, needy students. Mm -hmm. uh, the, mm -hmm. This is uh, focused on recognizing excellence. The scholarships are not large, but they're, they're a magnet for a, a great future for the winners. Uh, what can what can we do? Uh, I think uh, foster uh, excellence in education at home. Uh, do what you can to recognize it. Uh, I think it's really important. You know, for example, one of our past scholars was Bill Gates, and I think he's done pretty well. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Dick, you know we can't wrap up our conversation before quickly peeking behind the stripes. Do you have any passions or hobbies? Well, we have, a, you know, my wife and I have a couple of priorities. Uh, you know, we, first and foremost is family. Uh, second, uh, we like to travel, not so much right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have been able to, one of the neat things is we've been able to sort of meld the two uh, by taking each of our grandchildren alone with us on an international trip. Uh, over a number of years. And it's a great way to get to know your grandchildren. And uh, 
just find out if your children really trust you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that, that those are uh, our real priorities. Uh, we like downtime, we like to walk the beach, play a little bit of golf. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the other things I do is I'm in, on the board of the U.S. Naval Academy Foundation, and I've been heavily involved in their cyber, cyber program, which is uh, one of the best in the country. Uh, I just completed construction of $120 million uh, cyber facility. They're close to Washington, so uh, the, the students there have a great advantage, and, and the product is, is quite good. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, Dick, thank you so much again for joining us for this episode of the Your Edge podcast and sharing your wisdom and advice with our audience. It's my pleasure. It's great to be, be talking to you. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Dick. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of the Your Edge podcast and encourage you to check out our other recent conversations with Zebra's chairman, Mike Smith, as well as board members, Linda Conley, Janice Roberts, and Frank Mudrison. I'm Therese Van Ryan, signing off until next time.